You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Hello, all you wiretappers out there. This is a special episode. It's actually the audio from a Zoom call, so you'll notice that uh, the sound is not up to snuff that I usually try to put out. I started a new program that if you've ever supported the podcast, if you've given me any money, made any donations, if you have helped uh, by posting things on my Facebook pages or, like in one case, Casey McBride, has been a huge help in getting music for my movie and for my podcast. I, I just have to give him an idea about what kind of music I want, and he'll compose it and then record it. He'll play it and record it. So, Casey, thank you, which I say at the end of the podcast all the time. Well, this was a special tribute to Frank Culotta. I do this about once a month, so if you want to get on that list, send me a donation, and I'll put you on the list, and I'll send you a Zoom link, usually about the... Uh, the third or the fourth week in the month. I'm not going to try to pin myself down to a particular schedule. We had a special guest on this one, Denny Griffin. Now, Denny Griffin wrote, I believe, three books with Frank Culotta. I imagine Denny wrote, did all the writing. Uh, Denny was able to chronicle all of Frank's life with Tony Spilatro and the Hole in the Wall gang and his life before he came to Las Vegas and so and, and they're really interesting books, and, and Denny's a pretty decent writer. The first time I uh, ever ran across Denny, I was looking for a book when I was going to do my movie about the skimming from Las Vegas, and I found one called The Battle for Las Vegas by Dennis Griffin. I ordered it off of Amazon, started reading it, and he had all these great little stories in there from real people who were involved with the casinos, involved with the casino skim. Of course, a lot of comments from... Uh, uh, Stardust employees. He he set me up with one Stardust employee who is uh, in the in the movie Gangland Wire. She she had a lot of interesting things to say about Frank Rosenthal. She was really close to Frank. One of her stories was that uh, Alan Glick was trying to make her do something she didn't want to do, so she went to Frank and right in front of her, Frank called Alan Glick up and told her uh, told him if he didn't leave her alone, he was going to break both his legs set me up with all the FBI agents that were still out there, got them to uh, made a trip out to Las Vegas and interviewed all them. The head of Metro Intelligence at the time, Kent Clifford, interviewed him. And, of course, Denny himself. So Denny's going to be on here. It's kind of a tribute to Frank Culotta because he just died of, uh, I guess, COPD and the COVIDs uh, as a combination, I understand. So it's kind of the, the end of an era with Frank Culotta. There's nobody else out there that I know of that is as prolific and talks as much and, and is, is uh, approachable to people. I'm going to have uh, one of my uh, big podcast supporters and an old friend of mine, Barry, from actually he's from Kansas City, and he took the tour. So he's going to tell us about what that was like taking the tour. And then he's going to share all kinds of interesting little side stories about uh, his relationship with Frank Culotta. So settle back and, and listen. If you want to be on the next invitation list, why send me some money in your email. And uh, you guys that do hit me up on the Venmo, why just attach your email to it and I'll, uh, I'll put you on the list and we'll continue to do that. It's kind of fun for me. Hey, how you doing? Great. Barry, Barry's the one guy I know so far that's been on Frank Culotta tour. So I don't know if any of the rest of you guys have or not, but Barry took it. Very interesting. Still, still got a few more people, but yeah, he was, uh, 
I, I've noticed that uh, people really comment, really made some nice comments about it. He was, he must have really been personable to these, uh, to these guys. There's Ken, Mike, I can, my Facebook guy. <laughs> well, I don't know if he can hear. Well, let's see. Waiting room. Well, I need to uh, admit Casey. All right, we got 14. Casey will be 15. There they are. <coughs> Tomorrow. Anybody else take that tour? I was going to if I ever you know, got back out there. Yeah, I never got the chance. Yeah, I didn't either. Hey, Gary. Yeah. When when Frank first started doing the tours, instead of private tours, he was going on the bus tour. Oh, really? I didn't Robert Allen had a, a bus tour he ran. Yeah. So... We were all out one night, and Frank was, uh, Robert Allen says, Frank, why don't you, instead of getting on the bus when we left the hotel, he said, why don't you meet us over in front of Bertha's? And uh, then we'll have you get on the bus, you know, and surprise everybody. Yeah. So Frank, Frank, a, a guy gave Frank a ride over to Bertha's to, to hook up with us. Yeah. And we pull up on the bus, and all of a sudden there's Frank in the middle of the road, Waving his arms, so the bus driver pulls over and opens the door, and Frank comes on. So we're expecting Frank to announce, you know, Robert Allen to announce, "Hey, I got a surprise guest." Frank says, "Pull away quick! I almost got mugged." <laughs> well, that was a little bit like the last time he was out at Bertha's. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he ran from that for just a short period of time. <laughs> Yeah, I think he said he 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 ran. Is this remind me if I'm not right here, Kenny? He, he ran to where there was people because he's afraid <laughs> the cops would just start unloading on him because of that history with that uh, Blixty or not Blixty with uh, 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 oh that kid that the uh, copper killed out there. That history, he was scared to death of Metro intelligence. Yeah, he he. He told me that he, he thought for sure that if he didn't get in where there were some witnesses, the the cops and the FBI were going to do him in. He said he didn't yeah. think he'd ever make it to the police station. <laughs> you know, what I was surprised was when I did it, it was just two of us. Frank drove. Yeah. And, you know, you wonder anybody could have taken that tour, and if they wanted to off him, they could have. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> I thought about yeah, that. He, I mean, he didn't know us. He picked us up yeah. at the pepper mill and shook our hand, got in the car, and started telling us stories. <laughs> I, I tell you what, talk about putting yourself out there. It's uh, <laughs> in a dangerous situation. I've given a few tours here in Kansas City to people that I didn't know, and I'm always thinking, I wonder who these people are. <laughs> it always worked out okay, but <laughs> I don't figure anybody cares enough about me to kill me. But. <laughs> All right, uh, Casey, we don't have your video. Are you on there, Casey? Well, yeah. Okay, yeah, we don't have a video. You know, on your lower left-hand corner, has got that, uh, like, a X uh, across, across. Yeah, your... it should be showing it. Let's see. Let me, hold on. Which Casey are you talking oh, it's, to, it's, Gary? Oh, it's, I'm here. Okay. Oh, it's Casey Walsh. Okay, Casey Walsh. I'm sorry. There's two Casey's. Okay. Okay, all right. We got two Casey. <laughs> I was confused there for a second. Can't do that to me. <laughs> okay, no, I got it. Two more here. I gotta admit, let's see, admit all yeah. <coughs> coming back. He was on before and then I couldn't seem to get it going. Well, 
Well, Danny, I want to tell you, I've really enjoyed all your books. Oh, thank you very much. Glad you did. Yeah, me too. Thank you. Be free. Thank you. <laughs> Got a, a new one coming out by the end of the year. It's uh, okay, yeah. called The Informant. Yeah. And it's uh, uh, about a guy I never heard of before uh, who actually was an informant that helped bring Frank and the Hole in the Wall gang down. And All right, it was yeah. a re really a weird, weird story. Okay, let's see. I, I've got Sounds good. Steve Rowe, who uh, uh, is muted and there's no video. And Smiley looks like he's hooked up, but there's no video. Brett, that's Brett. There's, yep, there's got our, it now. There's our other cartoonist. We've got two cartoonists tonight. You can draw pictures of us all, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Although, uh, I'm. Uh, the other cartoonist is gone all of a sudden. I can't remember. I can't remember who's who all of a sudden. Oh, oh uh, his name. Too many people sometimes. Anyhow, well, it's uh, it's about five, six after eight. I always like to start things on time. So let me let me just kind of kick this off, you guys. You know, we uh, I, I was going to do this again anyhow, and then when I uh, when Frank died, he was such a an icon <coughs> in this you know, subculture of mob fans, but he was such an icon. He was so out there and he was, he was so helpful and, and gracious to so many people. And, and I first met him in what, 2013 at the mob world summit. And I met Denny Griffin and Paul Sharp at that time. Uh, and I, Paul was on here, but I don't see what happened to him. Paul has a, has an interesting tour story too, but I got Denny Griffin here, who is a mob author. Denny, when I first started making my first movie, uh, Gangland Wire, I, I, I knew it was going to be about the skim in Las Vegas, and I knew everything about Kansas City, but I didn't know much about what happened out in Las Vegas. And Denny uh, had written a book, The Battle for Las Vegas, so I'm noodling around Amazon to find Denny's book. Yeah, there it is. Battle for Las Vegas, and I get it. I ordered, I get it, and I'm reading down through there. And it's got, I mean, it's got people, good, great quotes from the real people who were involved. You know, a casino employee, the uh, the FBI agents who were involved, and and several other people. And and, and they were, you know, I, I got hold of Denny, and Denny is the most gracious, helpful guy I've ever ran into. Uh, <laughs> I could only well, be you. that gracious and that helpful, and. and you know, since then, that was that your first book, Danny? That was my second nonfiction book. Okay. the The first one was uh, the history of the Las Vegas Metro Police Department. Oh, oh that's right, I forgot. Policing Las Vegas. Right, and I never, I never did get that and read it, but I've got the others. Uh, and then you hooked up with Frank Gulotta and you did a couple books with Frank. You hooked up with Andrew DiDonato and did Surviving the Mob, which has been on the podcast. That's a heck of a he has a heck of a story. And uh, see, so you did three with uh, with, with uh, Frank. So I, I guess my question would be: I'll kind of speak for everybody. If anybody's got any questions, just you know, uh, start talking or raise your hand or whatever, and, and we'll see that. Uh, most everybody can see each other. Uh, but uh, uh, how did you first meet uh, Frank? Did he? I had finished the manuscript for the Battle for Las Vegas. And the only thing that had me frustrated was I didn't have any mobsters. 
I had several <laughs> FBI agents, retired, uh, you know, retired Metro. But I said, geez, I'd love to, to be able to get a, some comments or quotes from, uh, from the Hole in the Wall gang. And uh, I was having trouble locating anybody. They were dead or in prison or witness protection. So I talked to Dennis Arnold, a retired FBI agent, and he, uh, he had helped me out with the book and introduced me to some of his former associates. And I said, do you have any idea, Dennis, how I can get a hold of Frank Collada? He says, as a matter of fact, I do. He says, uh, Frank and I became friends over the years, and we keep in touch. So Dennis hooked me up with a, a phone call interview with Frank. And Frank just, uh, we talked for maybe two or three minutes, nothing major. Frank gave me a couple of uh, quotes and answered a couple of questions for me that I was able to get added to the manuscript. And that, that was how we first met, and that would have been in 2004. Wow, that's cool. You know, and, and you uh, you hooked me up with Dennis Arnoldi. Uh, these these guys uh, that go into witness protection program, whoever their agent is that deals with them, they always get real close. I just did one with this Elaine Smith from Chicago that that turned Ken Edo, who was uh, Tokyo Joe, the uh, bookmaker, and, and uh, had the policy up in Chicago, the policy, uh, ran policy for the outfit. And she became really close with him. So that's, that's kind of common. I, I got hold of Dennis myself when I was trying to get uh, somebody, a, a mobster for my movie. And, and I, couldn't, I couldn't afford him. <laughs> <laughs> I offered him some money. So that wouldn't get me into Las Vegas, which he was pretty fresh. He was, I think he was still in a witness protection at the time and not probably run under his own name. So I had to, I had to forgo that because I was on a budget and I'd already spent all my budget on a cameraman that I flew out to Las Vegas and, and had to do all that. So uh, he went in Las Vegas and uh, it just it was too expensive. But uh, uh, then uh, as you got to know him, I mean, how did that how did that progress, Denny? Uh, a few months after Battle for Las Vegas came out, I was thinking, you know this Frank Collada would have a hell of a story to tell if he'd be willing to be totally candid. Yeah. And um, I reached out to, to Arnold e again, and I said, you know, next time you're talking to Frank, I said, we see if he's ever thought about writing his biography. So a few months went by, I didn't hear anything, and I was talking to Dennis one day, and I did a follow-up. I said, uh, did you ever hear anything back from Frank? I said about maybe doing a bio. He says, oh, geez, he said, I forgot to tell you, he wants to do it, and he wants to meet with you. So uh, Frank was not living in Vegas at the time, and it was a rather bizarre situation. Dennis says, what, uh, I'll arrange a meeting. He said, Frank will come into Vegas and meet with you. He said, but because of uh, the witness protection angle, he says, you can't know when and where until it happens. So the, when he finally, Dennis, got the meeting set up, and he called me, and he said, okay, he said, we're going to meet at uh, 1 o'clock tomorrow afternoon, but I can't tell you where. I'll, you'll get that information tomorrow morning. So uh, the next morning, he called me and told me what hotel to be at, and I met, uh, I met Dennis, and uh, he took me up to Frank's room, and it was really odd. I had to get kind of padded down, have my briefcase searched. It was kind of a... Uh, a different situation, but uh, Frank and I uh, ended up talking for probably two hours or a little more, uh, 
about doing his bio and how we could do it. And uh, we ended up making the deal on a handshake. So I was, I was driving home that day. I got thinking, you know, and I hear this, Frank's a career criminal. <laughs> really? And I made a deal with him on a handshake. It was that a wise move. I started having some, some second thoughts, but it worked out okay. <laughs> when did Frank come out of witness protection? He actually got out, uh, I believe he was out well before the casino movie. So probably uh, 87, maybe I'm thinking he, he voluntarily left the program. He said it was driving him nuts. So uh, he wanted to bail out, although the, the, I guess they're never truly out in the sense they always have somebody they can call or, or contact, you know, if things go sour. But uh, he was, he was uh, released from the program at his request. How long was he in the program? Uh, well, he did a couple of years prison time and then a couple of years, he probably three or four years total. He was not in it actively in it that long. Interesting. Uh, what, no. was, he in the, was he in that snitch prison out in San Diego where they said a lot of those guys? Yes. Okay. And he hated every minute of it. He said it was solid rats. It was the rat, <laughs> rat center. And he said every time you were on the phone, there'd be somebody sneaking around trying to listen to one of the inmates trying to listen to your phone call. And if they got any good information, they'd run and try to get a deal, you know, for themselves and try to, uh, uh, to turn in. So he, he said it was really a cesspool there. He said he couldn't, he was happier than hell when he got out of there. Interesting. Interesting. I never thought so about that. When he first came out of witness protection, was this after the family secrets in Chicago? Was there a Chicago mob still looking for him when he first came out? Frank, uh, Frank told me, cause I, I asked him when we, what it was like, you know, and I, I said, he said at the time, he was still concerned about his safety from the mob. By the time I met him, he said, as far as he was concerned, virtually everybody he had ever dealt with in the outfit uh, or associated with the outfit was either dead or in jail. Okay. So he said he wasn't that concerned about them. He said his main concern at that point, when I started working with him, was the... Uh, Somebody might be like the old Western gunslingers, you know, want to get a notch in their belt by knocking off the uh, the fastest gun in the West. So he was a f uh, more concerned that somebody would want to make a name for themselves by being the guy that knocked off Frank Collada. Uh, somebody he never met, didn't know, but somebody just looking for a reputation. So that was his main fear then. Interesting. Similar to Whitey Bulger. Yeah, that would be your big fear, would be like Whitey Bulger. Are there any uh, uh, Zoom experts in here? I got uh, Paul Sharp from Texas, who was, is a guy, a little background on Paul. Uh, he can't get in. He's, a, he's the guy who, Frank Culotta had this Larry Newman, another member of the Holland Wall gang, tell him about how he flew back to Chicago and killed this guy and then flew right back to Las Vegas. And, and he shouldn't have done it. He wasn't supposed to. Frank told him not to. He was kind of his boss in the Holman Wall gang. And, and, and Paul Sharps, that was his father. And, and he didn't find out about it, even though Frank told everybody, told uh, federal law enforcement, who then took it to the McHenry County uh, law enforcement. Nobody ever told Paul 
that his dad uh, uh, was killed by Larry Newman. Somebody had already ratted him out, and Newman had another murder case back in Chicago area at the time. And the McHenry County people did not want to go after this because they were corrupt, and they wanted to denigrate Frank Culotta as a witness, trying to make it not not act on anything that might be good information, which is a pretty common thing with these mob guys. They, when they get a, a storyteller, they try to denigrate them as much as they can and show what a liar they are uh, before they uh, testify. But I, Paul just, he, he was here and he's battling this out and said, do, do I have a telephone number? Uh, anybody know anything about this? How do you find, is there a telephone number for this? I've seen that somewhere. It should be in the invite, Gary. In the invite, there should be a number. Uh, well, that's not a number there, huh? Let's see, copy invitation, and then maybe if I print that. You guys, go ahead and ask Denny some more questions there while I kind of mess around with this. Can Can I just say, Gary, that speaking about Paul, one day I got, uh, after, after Frank's book, Collada, the biography came out, I got a call from uh, my publisher, and the publisher says, there's a guy trying to get a hold of you. His name is Paul Scharf, and he said that he just read about his father's murder in the Collada book. So he wanted to touch base with me. So Paul and I ended up uh, communicating, and he says, uh, after all these years, he said, I, my, my former babysitter read the Collada book, and saw uh, about Larry Newman murdering my dad and the barmaid. So that was how Paul found out yeah. uh, know that Newman that. Newman was the guy. That was a great story. It's also a good podcast, Gary. That's a good yeah. one. Yeah, it was. He interviewed Paul. Yeah. He has a book, uh, McHenry, what is it, McHenry County Murder 1981. I was going to look that up. Murder in McHenry. Murder in McHenry. Yeah, here it is. Murder in McHenry. A Son's Pursuit of Justice. It's a pretty good book, too, actually. It's, uh, it's really interesting. Kind of a different view of, of a mob murder. So, uh, yeah. go ahead. Denny, Frank, you had um witness protection program. I understand the initials were JC. Do you know what that stands for? I do. And uh, a TV channel out of Chicago called me the other day. They were going to do an obit on Frank. And the guy asked me, but I was told that there's an estate issue involved and that uh, they asked me not to divulge that that name for the time being because it could screw up the uh, the estate matters. So uh, really? that JC is, is the are the correct initials. It's just I can't really say right at this point what what the name stood for or what the initials stood for. Well, I wonder if that would be interesting. He had a life under another name, another social security number, as well as Frank Collada and that social security number. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what, how do you what, figure all that out, man? Especially, did what, he have any kids? Maybe while he was uh, in <laughs> another name, so somebody's what, got another claim to an estate of that guy, but yet that's the same guy. I don't what, know, man. What Frank, what Frank used to do, he, he'd be coming into Vegas every so often from, uh, he was living in, in Southern California, and uh, he, he had a pretty, pretty good lead foot on him, and he was always speeding. So what he would do when he got, when he got uh, arrested or got ticketed for speeding, 
he'd, he'd use both names. In other words, the first time he'd use one name and then he'd <laughs> use the JC name. And the next time we go back with Frank Collada and, uh, what he would do, you, you could get your points removed, apparently, if you took an online yeah. course of some kind. So Frank would pay women to pose as him and go out and do it to get it to get his points taken off. But then sometimes he'd say, I screwed up. He says, uh, my last ticket was under JC, and I gave him JC again, he says, so I got in a little hot water. But he would uh, he tried to flip him back and forth. That's interesting. Uh, there's always a scam in there. Yeah. Work, oh, 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 there's always a way to work around, work around, as we call those in the computer business. <laughs> yeah. Work around the system. You know, another uh, book that, that Denny wrote uh, is uh, uh, <clears throat> this uh, one with interviews Andrew DiNonato, uh, Surviving the Mob. What, what was he like? How did you first get connected with him? Well, Andrew, uh, actually his girlfriend at the time, read Frank's book. So she told Andrew, she says, why, why don't you contact this guy? Uh, you know, if he did a good job for Collada, he said, you know, maybe he's trustworthy. Maybe you could do something with him. So she reached out to me and, and just said that she had a friend who was, inter you know, was a former uh, Gambino associate and was interested in the book. And would I talk with him? So um, I said, sure, I'll, you know, I'll talk to anybody. So. We ended up meeting at a restaurant in Vegas, and uh, my wife and I, because it was a coffee shop that we liked anyway, so we were in there, and Andrew came in, and, and we talked, and then Andrew had a close friend of his. He called him an uncle, uh, who, was a, who was an associate uh, with a New York family, had been, and, uh, and he came in, Andrew introduced us, and we were shooting the breeze, and my, my wife wanted to go next door. There was a store in uh, beauty parlor or something. She wanted to get some kind of cosmetics. And uh, she said, well, if, if you'll excuse me, she said, I'm going to run next door and get something. And the uncle says, I don't think so. He said, you heard too much. You're not going anywhere. <laughs> the look at her face was priceless. I'll tell you. <laughs> what's, the name, what's the name of that book? Surviving the Mob. That's a good. That's a good read, by the way. You did a nice job on that, Danny. Oh, thank you. That's thank you. I'm yeah. glad you liked it. Yeah, that was it was a for me. It was just a page turner. I thought so too. I think I had that read in less than in less than a week. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was. It was quite a. It, it was quite a. It was a fun book to write. You know, because you had a lot of good stories. Yeah, and when yeah, he, that, that guy's a storyteller. <laughs> oh yes, he's 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 great. He's a, he's a showman. <laughs> when, when I first met Benny and Paul, and I just got a message from Paul. He's not going to, we can't figure it out. He can't figure out how to go through the internet, and I can't figure out how to get a phone number for him to call in. So we'll tell a little more about Paul's story. But when I, I first met Denny and Paul at the Mob World Summit 2013, and Andrew was one of the presenters out there, and, and I'm, I had to follow this dude. <laughs> and this guy, he had that one story about when they stole the car <laughs> and he stripped it down and they were going to take it out of the uh, chop shop that they were using, which was some kind of Brooklyn, just like a, a storefront, uh, opened the garage door and they were going to push it out. Well, I guess it still had the motor 
and it had the steering wheel, which you put a pair of vice grips on because one of the guys wanted the steering wheel. It was some kind of a fancy steering wheel. So I put a pair of vice grips on the, the nut that holds, that holds the steering wheel on and, and, in order to steer it, and it would run. And so we started down the street, and, and a couple of uh, uh, district guys, or one, I don't know, a, a uniform marked car came up behind him and then started trying to stop him. And there he is in a car chase <laughs> in the streets of Brooklyn in this car that has no doors or fenders. Or <laughs> and he's he steered it with a, with a pair of vice grips. <laughs> it was Oh, man, I had to follow that guy. Jeez. Oh, God, that was hilarious. The shell chase, the great yeah. shell chase. <laughs> <laughs> he tells me, I've got a, an interview with him on the podcast, I don't know, a couple, three years ago. I've done so many now, that, uh, but it's out there, and it's a, it's a good one. I recommend you go back and listen to that. He's uh, got stuff like that all the time. When, you know, we're on the run. We got $400,000 in armed car heist. And, <laughs> I was hiding out. My, you know, my girlfriend was this, and I was that. Plus, he's got a great accent, too. <laughs> We were we were doing an event at the Las Vegas Clark County Library. They used to have Mob Month uh, every January, and I was I helped them out. I set up some panels and so forth. And I got two good stories about that. One was uh, Andrew was a, was a panelist the one night, and he had a bodyguard. It was actually a friend of his. He used to be a, f a football player, played professionally with the Jets. But he he didn't he didn't pack. He he was uh, strictly you know a, a martial arts type guy, and uh, I I was Andrew. We took a little break in the um, in the session so people could use the restroom and so on. And Andrew says, he said I got to get out of here. He says, are you armed? And I said, yeah. He said, well, can you walk me out to the car? And I said, what's the deal? He said, I'll tell you later. He said, just I need to get out of here. So I escorted him and his friend out to the out to the car, and they took off. And I went back in. I had no clue what what the issue was, what was going on. And um, so later that night, I called Andrew and I says, uh, "Is everything okay?" He said, "Yeah." He said, "What happened was," he says, "A guy from New York, a made man from New York," he says, "came in the library." He oh. says, "I saw him come in the door." He says, and the requirement was, if you're a made man and you run into a guy, there's a contract on, you're obligated to carry it out. <laughs> he, said, so, he says, I figured they was there looking for me, you know. Uh, so I says, well, everything's okay now. He said, yeah. He says, uh, everything's okay. So the next morning, I, 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 we agreed to meet for coffee. Now, Vegas, you know, was, I mean, it wasn't the biggest city in the world, but it was spread out in a pretty big place. So we, we go to this... Uh, this coffee shop, I meet Andrew there, and all of a sudden, he says, Jesus Christ, I said, what's the matter? He says, there's that guy. It's bumping into him in a coffee shop. So Andrew says, Andrew started after him. And he told me later, he says, one thing I learned, he says, you can't run from these guys. If, if, if you're face-to-face -face with him, you got to go after him. You can't try to run away. So this guy sees Andrew, and he gets scared. He drops his, co <laughs> drops his coffee on the ground, and out he goes. And Andrew chases him out in the parking lot. And come to find out, the guy had accidentally gone into the library. He didn't know Andrew was going to be there. It wasn't an intentional deal. And he was on parole in New York State, and he wasn't supposed to be out of state. So he, he was a parole violator, so Andrew dropped a dime on him, and they ended up arresting him, and he took him back, took, took him back to, to, really? to New York. The other one was a, 
one of those events, Henry Hill was, was there. And I, I was always nervous with Henry because at the time, I'm, I don't think he was doing drugs anymore, but he, he liked his booze. Yeah, yeah, and I always figured he could probably blow a triple the limit and still act normal because he had that capacity, you know. But uh, I'd always be worried whether he was going to show up and if he showed up for these events, what kind of shape he'd be in. And when Henry drew a hell of a crowd, all you had to do was say Henry Hill would be there and the yeah. place was packed. So there was, uh, I don't know, I, I think the main uh, main theater there held 350 people and they put in an overflow of another 150 people with a closed circuit TV set up. So we, we had an audience probably around 500. And Henry shows up 10 minutes before we're supposed to start. And I breathed a sigh of relief, you know, when he came in. But I could tell that he had probably had a tough afternoon. <laughs> yes. So everybody's got their, at, at their place at the tables and they, they all got a mic in front of them. And I'm, I'm looking at Henry and I see, you know, as I'm talking to this one or that one or asking questions, I see Henry's head slowly start going down. Then he'd catch himself and straighten back <laughs> up. And then his head would slowly go down. And I'm thinking uh, I, I couldn't ignore everybody else and just have Henry talk to keep him awake. You know, I had to, I had to keep involving <laughs> other people. And finally, he didn't he didn't catch himself, and his forehead hit the microphone, and it sounded like a gunshot. And all these people are screaming. People are diving under their chairs. Of course, Henry snaps out of it then, and he he straightens up, and he realizes what had gone on. So he. He sprang into action. He says, okay, everybody, everybody, there's no no problem here. No problem. Nobody's been shot and everybody's okay. <laughs> so uh, uh, people get up and people start laughing, you know, and giggling a little, uh, uh, laughing more in relief than anything else. But uh, so Henry started talking and, you know, apologized for uh, any inconvenience. And then there's almost the same thing has happened to us with uh, Andrew DiDonato's uncle. This woman gets up and she's going to make her way to the ladies' room. So she's walking across the top tier to the doors and Henry spots her and he says, you, where do you think you're going? And now she's she's totally uh, confused and scared. She can barely talk. So, but, 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 I'm going to the, the, the ladies' room. He says, oh, no, you're not. You know too much. You're not leaving. You're going nowhere. And she didn't know what to do. I thought she was going to cry that everybody broke out laughing and that broke the ice. But uh, it, it was it was quite a uh, quite an interesting time with these guys. Really, really, and uh, you've been through it. You know, uh, let's go back to Frank Coulard a little bit. I've got a couple of questions. Anybody got any questions for Denny? Any other questions? I've got one about Frank. Uh, you know, I, I tried to line you up with Ernie Devino, and by the way, Ernie Devino was one of the early original members of the Hole in the Wall Gang, and he died recently. Uh, at the same time as Frank. Now, those two guys did not like each other, right, did he? Exactly. <laughs> I, I tried to, uh, Ernie has a story, I think, I don't know if he's written it or what, I mean, who knows what happened to it now, there's a man, I think he had a manuscript, he got hooked up with some guy that was really just, I, I don't know, jerking him around and probably trying to rip him off for the story, I, I, I couldn't figure it out, and then I, I was, got introduced to Ernie and started talking to him, and, and much to my dismay, uh, I never got around doing a podcast with him. I talked to him several times on the phone. He's a good guy. I liked him. And uh, he, wanted, he was trying to peddle his story, and I tried to hook him up with Denny, but Denny, he and Frank just did not like each other at all. So Denny was caught in the middle, is, is my understanding, right, Denny? 
Yeah, I, I talked to Ernie uh, by phone a, a couple of times, and uh, basically what he was, uh, his story differed a lot from Frank's, and he was taking a lot of jabs at Frank. Uh, yeah. You know, Frank and I were, were friends, and uh, I told Ernie, I said, if this is going to be an attack book on Frank, I said, I'm going to have to pass. I said, I really, I'm, I'm not going there. So... Uh, we talked one more time, I believe, after that, and uh, we agreed that uh, we were not going to be able to do any business. So I, I never did any more with it than that. Yeah, well, that's uh, I never did get to see it or anything. I probably should have pushed him. Said, "Well, let me take a look at that. At least I'd have had a copy of it. Been kind of interesting. I mean, an interesting read, I would imagine." Anyhow, uh, you know, another story about Frank. You know, they uh, they had the uh, Bluestein kid. Uh, the uh, I can't remember was it Gene Gene Smith and that other Las Vegas man Gruber Copper Gruber shot one of them shot and killed uh, Frankie Blue Frankie Blue Frank Bluestein I, I get these names all mixed up then, uh, and then supposedly there was a hit out and that's when Kent Clifford goes back to Washington I mean back to Chicago and and threatens. Uh, all the mob guys, they went, I think, went to Alan Dorkin's office or to another lawyer's office. I, I, I actually, Kent's in my movie and I interviewed him and I've got that whole story I, I put out. I think I've got it on my YouTube channel. But what did Frank, did, did Frank talk about that very much, kind of any more off the cuff or anything? That was such a crazy story. Yeah, uh, it was, it was, Frank felt that Bluestein that night was was kind of asking for trouble. He told him, he, he said, you know, he said, you got to get rid of those Chicago plates. He said, the cops, they were out in front of the upper crust. And he said, the cops and the feds, he says, are here all the time. He said, there's always at least one or two cars out in the parking lot uh, watching us. He said, and, uh, you know, we think they got lip readers and the whole thing. He said, so he said, they see a Chicago plate come in here. He says, you're going to, they're going to be interested in you right off the bat. And then uh, Bluestein told him that he had that he had a gun in the car. And Frank said, Jesus Christ, he says, cops out here. He said, they're, they're wild men, you know. He said, they're not much different than us except they got badges. He, he said, he said you got to get rid of that piece. He said, you're looking for trouble. And uh, Bluestein said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to take care of it. So he pulled out that night, and sure enough, Smith and Groover were one of the surveillance cars in the parking lot. And just as Frank had predicted, they saw the uh, they saw the Illinois plates. They didn't know who the guy was or what his involvement was. So they decided they'd tail him, and uh, that was how the whole thing started. And Frank, Frank, and, and Tony Spilatro was there that night too. They were uh, Frank and Tony were both talking to Bluestein, and uh, he said it wasn't long. He got a, got the phone call, and uh, it was for Tony. Tony went and took the call, and he came back out, and he said, "Son of a." Bitch, he says they just killed Frankie Blue. So uh, the uh, Smith and Grover followed him, tried to stop him, and uh, that was the, the whole deal in the casino movie. There they portrayed it; he was carrying a sub sandwich or something, yeah. or a hero sandwich. But uh, he actually had the had the gun, and they ended up tracing the gun back to his brother, right? Bluestein's brother in Illinois. Back so, in Illinois, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's one of the stops on Frank's tour. Was the site where Frank Bluestein was killed. Yeah. Did, uh, what, kind, what kind of site, what, what area was it? Was it uh, 
you know, residential I, I, area. Yeah, see, I've been, I've been, I followed people like that trying to figure out who they were. And usually, you call a uniform district car over and get them over and put them over some red lights. And and I, I don't, they might do things different out there. Maybe they tried to get in front of him or they pinned him in somehow. It sounds like, or he might have. They might have just got up right on right on his butt until he just pulled over to stop and see who these guys were behind him. Because I believed, and you uh, might have been in your book, Denny, that he. Uh, 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 he meant some mention to Frank and them that somebody he thought somebody was trying to rob him or something like that. He, I, yeah, he, he thought he'd been tailed. He thought somebody was following him, and he yeah, he, he, he assumed it was a thief, a robber, yeah. uh, looking to set him up. You know. Yeah, it, it was a hell of a story, uh, and and Kent Clifford's story is even more of a hell of a story. <laughs> I love that story. It's so good. I read, that, I read that in the paper back then. I swear to intelligence shoot, I read this. This Las Vegas had been, Metro Intelligence had been kicked out of LEIU, which is Law Enforcement Intelligence Units, which our unit our, our unit was a member of, and a lot of them throughout the United States. Chicago's not in it, by the way, or they didn't used to be. Because uh, anybody that has any smell of, of any problems, they, they don't allow them to be a member of the uh, National Organization of Intelligence Units. And, and Las Vegas had been kicked out, but they'd been brought back in. And that was after they got rid of that Joe Blasco, who was in the intelligence unit, I believe. Is that, tell us a little bit about Joe Blasco. Denny, if you could, what, what do you remember about him? Yeah, Blasco had uh, quite a history uh, with, with Las Vegas. PD, and then after they formed Metro, and uh, uh, somebody he had arrested one time ended up dying, and uh, there was some some issues about that. And Blasco started uh, feeding information to Tony Spilatro and and other mobsters. There were several, of course, families represented in in Las Vegas, and he was giving information out about who was uh, you know under surveillance and what types of cars they were driving and and all that kind of thing. Uh, so Tony utilized him, and he also liked uh, Blasco because Blasco had, uh, you know, knew the police calls and the police codes and, and all this kind of stuff. So he was a valuable man, Tony thought. Uh, Frank wasn't that fond of it because Frank's idea was once a cop, always a cop, you know, and he didn't necessarily trust these guys. But uh, so so Blasco, and, and after Blasco finally got fired, then he just kind of started working openly for uh, for Tony and the and the boys, and he was there the night of uh, the birthday thing. He was he was manning the uh, the van when they had police scanners and police radios in it, and he was uh, he was their communications guy. He was going to monitor all the uh, police activity that night and let anybody know if they needed to abort the uh, bir the birthday's job. Obviously, it didn't work out, but that was the plan. <laughs> He, he was he was what we used to call a jiggering for him. I don't know if you guys ever heard that term, but if you're jiggering for somebody, it means you're you're watching out for as the cops show up. That's what he was doing. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, he was monitoring their frequencies too. I would imagine they probably had some idea. They knew that he was monitoring their frequencies. I know we working with the FBI. And this was before radios went digital, so you couldn't really. Yeah, it was hard to hide your frequency from somebody with a Bearcat scanner, and this guy would know enough to do that and just set it within certain parameters. And then if they got a real strong signal, any kind of signal real close to them that didn't make sense, 
within a certain parameters, they would be hip to, you know, there may be some police activity here. Uh, we came up with a real extensive set of codes there for a while while we were on the uh, Sabella and Tuffy DeLuna and everybody during the skim investigation because we knew they had people out trying to, to monitor us. Yeah, they 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 were uh, they they suspected that that was going to be the case, and uh, so they had some kind of a secret frequency installed that nobody yeah. knew. Oh, really? Yeah, so that night they uh, they could do their thing, and and nobody uh, at Metro, other than you know the people actually involved in the operation or the FBI, knew what this secret frequency was. So that's how they get around it. Yeah, I and, hadn't heard that. Yeah, I, I want to tell you too before I forget. Frank and I got involved in one final book that, uh, and I, I never would have thought I'd be involved in something like that, but Frank talked me into it. We co-authored a cookbook. Ah, uh, I didn't know about and, that. I don't see the, that in your page here. <laughs> it, well, it, it's at the publishers now and it's oh, not okay. out yet, right. but <clears throat> in fact, they're supposed to start editing it, uh, next week. And, what uh, the title of the book is Frank Collada's Greatest Parenthesis Kitchen Hits. <laughs> so that, that's the title of the book, Frank Collada's Greatest Kitchen Hits. And uh, it should be out by the end of the year, you know, when, when Frank's health was deteriorating. Uh, because I'm, I'm a consumer. I'm not a cook. I'm on the other <laughs> end of the, the chain. But Frank wanted me to you know, help him organize it and, yeah. and, and get it get it typed up and my wife participated as well and uh, I, I said Frank I said you know I said the the book you know is not gonna be out for a while yet I said what do you want to do here if things don't work out and he says I don't care what you do he said that's he said I'd love to cook and I want that book out so I promised him that it would get out so uh, I, I talked to the publisher and I said even though you know Frank isn't going to be able to see it through I says we want to continue with it. So, in fact, I I got an email from the publisher today. They said we're we're moving on it and we're going to have it out for you. So, anyway, I'll I'll let people know when Frank Collada's greatest kitchen hits hits the bookshelves. Interesting. Thanks. For so, that. are there some upper crust recipes in there? Absolutely, the upper crust pizza. That's that's the lead. That's the lead recipe. And he gives little anecdotes, you know, periodically through it about the. Uh, you know, different uh, different things, and he says, uh, you know, some of these recipes. If you happen to gain a couple of pounds, don't worry about it. I said, forget about forget it. About it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I noticed that that one YouTube uh, show he did on making a pizza was immensely popular. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, we darn. Any other questions here for Denny? Do we know, hey, yeah, sorry, Gary, do we know, Denny, or anybody else, what happened to the rest of the Hole in the Wall gang? Is Mateki the only one who's still around? No, Leo, I, I spoke with Leo Guardino about a year ago. Oh. I was able to locate him, and at the time, he was still, uh, he was driving truck. He was said retired, and I told him, uh, we had a possibility going of a, a documentary. It was a network interested in maybe a documentary uh, series based on that whole episode, the whole Vegas uh, Spilatro era. And they were looking for additional people, you know, to, to have on the, on the show. And uh, I asked Leo and 
he said, I'm done with that and I don't want any part of it. And, uh, you know, don't bother me again. So that was kind of the end of that. But that was as of about a year ago, he was, he was alive and still working. And then, uh, Frank emailed me in the past month and told me that somebody, I don't know if he did it, but somebody did some kind of a Google aerial search or something satellite thing. And he said, he found Mateki's house. And, uh, he said, he said, I can almost visualize him standing on the front porch. He said, but I can't quite know if it's him or not. But he said it was definitely Mateki's house. Mateki was alive. So as far as I know, uh, Guardino and Mateki are both still uh, still alive. Is Guardino up in Chicago? Is that where he is? A suburb, yeah. Yeah. I tried to find that Sal Romano where he might be alive. The last I heard of him, he was, he was the informant in the deal. He was the shall we call him the fly in the ointment that night at Bertha's, but he he uh, would testify in the family secrets trial. He was in a wheelchair at that point in time. I found it in the, in the newspaper article, and, and I, uh, so he had a couple of agents. Many times, like with Dennis Arnoldi, you find the agent, or there's Elaine Smith with Ken Edo. You find that agent, and then he can get a message to him many times. Uh, one of the people that turned him around, and both the two agents that I found connected with his name as if they, they had worked the case on him, uh, Romano, when they turned him, they were both dead. So uh, I, I just found at the end of that, I would imagine so if he was that old and that decrepit in, during the family secrets trials, whenever that was, with early 90s, he's probably gone. He's probably dead. Yeah, I, I tried to uh, locate him several years ago too and i ran in about the same thing you did it was uh plus he was in a witness protection program so you got to go through an agent that that made some contact with him otherwise you're never going to find him you know a lot of people ask me to say frank uh you know, murders wise and so forth, there was the old stuff about, well, we only kill each other and it's strictly business and all that. Yeah. They said, but how about all the victims of the burglaries and the, you know, yeah. what, what about them? They were, they were civilians. They were not, uh, yeah. and uh, it, it's in the books too, but uh, in the, the Collada book, but Frank says, don't kid yourself because cause they were using insurance agents as tipsters. You know, the insurance agents would tell them, you know, so and so just insured a, a bracelet, or and of course the the uh, the insured had to tell them what they were doing for security, and if it was in a safe or where it would be located, and all that kind of stuff in the value. He says, and we'd go. He says, and and burglarize that uh, that that property. He says, and then he says, the same agent who gave us the information would end up getting the claim. These yeah. people would file the, the claim with, with that same insurance company, insurance broker. And he says, they put in for an awful lot of stuff. He said, we never got. He said, so the, he said these guys made out pretty good on those deals. We all made out. Hey, hey Danny, I took a few of those burglar reports. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, I had a $15,000 gold watch. I had a, a $12,500 necklace. I, uh, my wife had these four diamond earrings, each valued at $2,500 each. And, and you're like, oh, yeah, sure, you know, yeah. You live about like I do, dude, and you've got fifty thousand dollars in jewelry. I mean, I've taken those reports. I know what that camp is. <laughs> you know, uh, too, I was just thinking about that, and one of the uh, when I first was uh, 
was doing the battle for Las Vegas, I, I wanted to interview Nancy Spilatro. So I was able to locate her and uh, her phone number for her. So I called and she was, uh, she admitted who she was. She didn't try to deny it or anything, but she, I asked her if she'd be up for an interview. I told her I was writing a book and um, she said, well, I got to talk to my son. So uh, it was actually Vincent was uh, the adopted son, Tony and uh, Nancy's adopted son. So Vincent called me, wasn't particularly happy Want to know what I was, and I don't know how much of it was an act, you know, trying to play tough guy and how much was legit. But he came across, you know, what are you doing bothering my mother? Who do you think you are? Blah, blah, blah. So uh, I told him what I was doing. And of course, he wanted to know if there was any money involved. And I said, no, no, I'm not paying. I don't pay for uh, interviews. So, uh, well, he finally agreed, figured there might be some publicity at least. So he, he said, okay, I'm going to tell my mother that it's okay to talk with you. And then, of course, he turned out to be part of the deal as well because he wouldn't let her talk to me alone. But uh, we, we we talked quite a bit, and uh, Vincent was always uh, looking at the money angle. And, in, in fact, where I, I would pick them up, they didn't have transportation. I'd pick them up to where we were going to go to, to talk. And... Uh, it always cost me a, a few packs of cigarettes or a couple of 12 packs or something on the way to or from, you know? Uh, and uh, one time uh, Vincent tried to uh, sell me a necktie. <laughs> he says, I got one of my, one of my dad's neckties here. He says, uh, he said, I'll let you have it for 50 bucks. And I, I said, yeah, all right. <laughs> a letter of authenticity, right? <laughs> so uh, I, 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 did, I didn't go for it anyway. But uh, what happened was that uh, later on, I, I don't know if you remember the uh, you Las Vegans about Ned Day, the reporter there. It was always uh, uh, having issues with Tony. They were uh, arch enemies. And that, that day's car got bombed. Uh, the car bomb was planted, and he did, didn't get hurt or anything, but uh, they found a, a bomb in his car. And uh, I asked Vincent one day, I said, Vincent, now, I said, tell me the truth. I said, what do you know about that car bomb in that day's car? And he said, well, he says, I'm going to be honest with you. So I'm thinking <laughs> that's usually a bad sign. Yeah, yeah. Well, normally you wouldn't be. Huh? You wouldn't be. <laughs> he he said that uh, he and another guy, he said they just wanted to send Ned a message. They didn't really want to kill him, mm -hmm. but they wanted to send a message to him and a friend of his. And he gave me the other guy's name who's still alive. But that uh, they went over and put the bomb in the car and uh, felt that their message got delivered and so forth. So I said, well, I said, maybe I solved the Ned Day car bomb issue. Larry, what about that? You think they solved the Ned Day car bomb? <laughs> we had a whole show on Ned Day, you and I did. <laughs> did I, it sounds like Vincent might have wanted some money for that story. I guess Vincent claimed for the uh, credit for the lefty Rosenthal bomb, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> busy man, busy man. <laughs> You're very busy bomber. <laughs> uh, 
And I think I think uh, Nick Savella claims the credit for the Lefty Rosenthal bombing. <laughs> well, Frank, didn't Frank, Gary, you interviewed Frank, and Frank yeah. also thought it was Kansas City, right? He, yeah, he does. He, I, I just saw him in another interview on uh, YouTube. I watched a few of them uh, after this, and, and he said, somebody asked him, you know, uh, the way he did those interviews, he would get messages from people, and then he'd answer questions on his YouTube channel. And they asked him who, who did that. And he said, he, he still said that, that uh, several years after I first heard him say that, that he thinks Kansas City did it for whatever reason. He didn't really give his reasoning. Uh, but I, I can give my reasons. I tell you what, they were matter of the hell at Lefty Rosenthal and they knew that he was an informant. They knew that, that he was talking. They knew that he's the one that stirred up all the stuff that brought uh, uh, the heat down on him from the gaming commission and, and from the Metro PD, they were, they knew, and the FBI, but he was, they were really bad at Lefty Rosenthal. I know that. Yeah, hey, Barry, uh, uh, where'd you guys go eat? He always takes people to eat. You know, we met at the Pepper Mill right after we ate breakfast, so we didn't go eat afterwards. Oh, okay. All right. But we, but when we were touring, you know, we, we hit all the spots. One of those is, he shows the exact parking spot that Lefty was parked in when his car blew up. <laughs> yeah. I think but at the, end of the, at the end of the tour, instead of going eating pizza, we just drove around. He said, ask any questions you want. You know, okay. so we, had, we asked a few questions. In fact, I asked him, I said, uh, who killed Sam Giancana? Yeah. And he said, you'll have to buy my next book to find the answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, is, this is in 2016. So I guess the next book, Danny, is probably is it the one, uh, the the Tony Spilatro book? Is that the one after 2016? I, I didn't, I haven't bought it yet. I I got the two Colada books, but yeah, the the one that came out was called "The Rise and Fall of a Quote Unquote Casino Mobster." Yeah, that one I haven't got yet. That that's a that's a good book. Uh, I ordered I ordered it on Amazon today. Did you really? I did. You will. Oh, good. Good. But no, the tour was very interesting, and, and he was a great tour guide. He told great stories. He's a likable fella. It was, yeah. You know, I'm shaking his hand, thinking, is that his Traeger finger? That I'm shaking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's very personable, isn't he? Or was uh, he was very, very yeah. yeah. The the people who took the tours loved him. I mean, uh, it really was uh, it was amazing. In fact, I got a call back when I was still living in Vegas part-time. I, I got my marriage minister license. We could perform marriages. Oh, yeah. And I, I only married one uh, one couple who ended up divorced within a year. But uh, <laughs> she uh, she moved back to Chicago, and, and she read and heard about Frank. And uh, she got a hold of me, and, uh, and, and she was really uh, – because Frank was there that day I did the ceremony. Frank was in attendance. They wanted a mobster on site. So he, so he came with me. And uh, her and Frank had, had gotten to be buddies. And uh, she was really, uh, you know, shook up. And, and it was just amazing to me the number of people who really cared about Frank. Yeah, and, uh, I've noticed that online. Yeah, it was surprising. Yeah, well, when we were at in Vegas for the the thing in 2018, and he was there, uh, you know, the whole time that I saw him, he was 
always talking to somebody, you know, and it was yeah. a different person every 10 minutes. There were people lined up, you know, that wanted to, to, to gab with him a bit. And he seemed happy to, to talk to anybody. He seemed very personable. Yeah. yeah, he was he was in his element, you know, uh, yeah. when he was uh, when he was doing that. He, he really loved it. And, you know, we had planned we were going to have MobCon 2020 this year, uh, the uh, 25th anniversary of Casino on, on top of it. And we were getting some great speakers lined up and then COVID hit. And yeah. Everything went down the tubes. But we it, was, it, it had a lot of promise. But, uh, you know, what the hell can you do? It's just the way it worked out. But. Yeah, MobCon 2020, we were going to give it a shot, and uh, I think it would have been a good one. You talk about Frank being personable. One of the stops on his tour was the house that they used in the movie that was supposed to be De Niro and Sharon Stone's house. Oh, yeah. So it's, if I remember, it's on a cul-de-sac. And so we stop, and we're all out of the car looking at the house and talking, and the owner of the house comes out. And he knows Frank. Frank's been there so many times. <laughs> he knows Frank. He comes out and he is very proud. He's excited to talk about his house being used on a tour. You'd think he'd get tired of the everybody stopping in front of his house, but he walked out and talked to us. And like I said, he was, he, he knew Frank very well. Uh, interesting. Yeah, Frank. Frank said he made friends with this guy over over time. He said it was. Guy loved it. Like you were he saying, you'd, you'd think he'd be annoyed, but he yeah. he, he couldn't wait for him to stop. <laughs> yeah, he came out of the house and came out and talked to us for a long time. You know, talking about that, that house is actually off of Las Vegas National Golf Course. Lefty Rosenthal's actual house is off of Las Vegas Country Club. Oh. <laughs> yeah, he took us by his – Lefty lived in a gated community. Correct. So he took us to there, but we couldn't get in. Obviously, it was gated. Yeah. So we did not see Lefty's house, but we saw Tony's and his brothers, and it was interesting. Yeah. You know, he, hey, he got Danny. a deal, deal going. Uh, somebody have a question? Yeah, I did. Sorry, Gary. Hey, Danny. I, I know I'm jumping back, but back to Nancy Spilatro. How long ago was that you saw? Is she still – does anybody know what happened to her? I'm, I'm, someone said she's really suffering financially, and she, she, <clears throat> excuse me, she was when when I was dealing with her and Vincent, um, she was, and I, I think I tracked her down about well when this documentary uh, project first materialized, a possible documentary. They wanted uh, the production company wanted me to see if Nancy would cooperate with the with the series and so i she had moved from where she had been and i found an address which i think was a good address for her but uh i couldn't get a phone number so i told the production company i said look i said here's here's where if, if you want to send somebody you know to that address and uh, see if it's her and try to talk with her um and uh, I said, but I got to be honest with you. I said, Nancy's all about money. I said, she's hurting financially. At least was then. I just assume it's still the same. And I said, uh, I'm not sure. I said that everything she told me when I interviewed her was accurate and truthful. I said, so just be aware of that. You know, if you make a deal with her, what, what you might be getting. 
And as far as I know, they never sent anybody to, uh, you know, to, to see if that was her and to, uh, to see if she'd work with them. So I, but as far as I know, that was, uh, you know, still a good address as of a couple of years ago. And what was the story on Vincent? He's, he's dead, right? Vincent died a couple of years. Yeah. He died just about when Nancy moved from her previous address to where I think I located her. Was it a drug overdose or do we, do we know? He had quite a few issues to deal with drug and alcohol abuse. So he had, you know, some liver issues, cirrhosis, I understand. And uh, I guess it was chronic. And he used to go to uh, somewhere in some hospital in Southern California every so often. He'd leave Vegas and go for treatments. So he he was having some some problems there. And Frank... uh, told me the story on, on Vincent, what, uh, what Tony had done, he, he, they couldn't have children, him and Nancy. So he paid 10 grand. I think it was a piece to, uh, two people to have a, uh, a child and, uh, they had Vincent and he took over Vincent and made it an adoption, but he, he paid, uh, surrogate parents to to have to have Vincent with Tony was it inseminated with Tony's no okay Frank, Frank talks about it in his last book well his second to last book uh and he says that yeah they, they paid them 10,000 and he he mentions who it was too and I can't remember uh her name but he definitely he clears it up in his last book so it wasn't with Tony's DNA. No, no, it was someone totally unrelated to Tony. And what? The guy I think was it was uh, used to do some radio work and stuff for the mob guys, and he was apparently a genius. And I guess that was appealing to Tony to have somebody with some brains, you know, that was uh, that was going to participate in this deal. <laughs> and then, then later, um, I, I believe the mother, the the, the girl, half of the. Uh, deal was was maybe thinking about trying to get some money out of Tony or something or tried to contact him and uh, Frank set her straight he said if I were you I'd I'd leave this alone it might not be might not be a good move <laughs> you, you mentioned the tie the $50 tie whatever happened to all of Tony's possessions did Nancy try to sell all that stuff uh Nancy and Vincent Vincent was kind of the 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 mover and shaker financially whatever financiers there were you know vincent was always uh selling stuff you you selling uh when the mob experience there the, the, the where was it the trap when yeah. when that was before they folded up uh, he was selling them stuff uh, family pictures and home videos and all that kind of stuff so he uh th- they needed apparently quite a bit more money than they were taking in uh, you know uh from I don't know whatever social security or disability whatever whatever they were getting, and uh, Vincent was always looking for a buck and uh, and ways to make a buck. It uh, didn't make him a bad guy, but it's just that's the situation they were in. And uh, Nancy, I think, uh, you know, allowed him to be to be the guy that uh, to kind of run run the operation, and she just I think went along with the program. 
that's interesting. I'd make all kinds of money and then blow all kinds of money too, and, and not ever save any. Uh, live live for the moment. I, I don't know. You would thought he could uh, he would have had a bunch of money hidden away. A lot of those guys will have some kind of a, a box hidden out with cash money in it. You buy a, a mobster's old house. Be sure you go through all the walls and dig up the backyard a little bit. You know, I remember Frank. I think it was the the, the first Colorado body to buy all. Um, and in fact, I think it's in the book. Actually, Frank said that he had thirty-eight guys, associates of his, criminal associates, and all thirty-eight of them were dead either at the hands of other mobsters or at the hands of law enforcement. He said and that didn't count all the ones in prison. So he said, uh, you know, uh, job security, job security, that wasn't that great. He said, uh, he said he didn't want to be number 39 to go on that list. And when they get old, they haven't paid any Social Security, more than likely or awful lot of them haven't paid anything in the Social Security, all they left off that cash money. <laughs> All right, well, it is about 9 o'clock here. Anybody got any more questions for Denny or for me? or for? I haven't got a question, but I got a comment. I just came across a podcast called Mobbed Up. Yeah. I don't, know if it's, if, I don't know if it's old and I just found it or if yeah. it's new. I, I heard you on there, Gary. Yeah. But, but if nobody else has listened to it, it's great. It's very interesting. That's a, a kid works for the Las Vegas uh, Review Journal, Reed Redmond, and he did this in – connection with the Bob Museum, and, and he did a, what, a 10-part episode or 10-episode series on this whole time in Las Vegas. I was going to say, I uh, recently came across a video. Someone took Frank's tour and videoed. It's about an hour, hour and a half. Right. Yeah, so so you YouTube? can go back and see Yeah, on YouTube. Yeah. I heard about that. I haven't watched it, but I heard about it. I hadn't heard about that one. I have to look for that. Put a link up on my uh, Facebook page. You guys be sure, and I started this new Facebook page. It's a small one, just people that listen to podcasts. And, and I think there's only 133 people on it, and I want to keep it small. My other one's got like 9,000 people on it, I just noticed the other day. And, but this is a smaller one where we can have more, a little more interaction and uh, with each other and have some more open discussion without having any booger eating morons jump on there. And, and less rat comments. I tell you what, the, I, I, the worst comments are on YouTube, though. I swear to God, there's some net cases on YouTube. I look at those comments like, oh my God. People are yeah. brutal. <laughs> they are. Hey, Gary, thanks for doing this, man. And Denny. Geez, thanks a lot. I mean, yeah, it's Denny. fascinating hearing Denny talk yeah. about Oh, it's just been fun. I'm, I'm real tickled to get a chance to talk to you guys. Right. Uh, and don't forget, Frank Collada's Greatest Kitchen Hits and The Informant. <laughs> and just so you know about The Informant, I don't think I mentioned this earlier, that uh -uh. these these uh, this guy was a tipster, hung out at the Upper Crust. And oh. they would give uh, the Hole in the Wall gang information on drug dealers to knock over they would know who had a lot of drugs and uh then the davino and frank and the boys would uh would do the burglaries and then they would give these guys their cut for the tip to tip money and on one occasion 
they had a hell of a good score. And one of the other guys uh, said, well, you know, why do we have to tell them how much we got? Why don't, why don't we withhold a little bit, <laughs> pay them their tip based on the lower amount? Yeah. So they did, and these guys knew it. The, the tipsters knew it, that they got screwed. So they decided that uh, they knew where the, where the drugs were stashed, so one of the guys goes over and burglarizes Frank's house. <laughs> it seals the drugs. <laughs> it seals the drugs back. And uh, then he comes to the conclusion. He, he says, well, he says, they're going to know, you know, because his, his cohort told him, don't take anything but the drugs. There's going to be other merchandise and stuff in there and jewelry, but don't take any of that stuff. Just take the drugs. So this guy says that did the the, the burglary says they're going to know damn well it was an inside job. I mean, why would anybody leave all the other loot and just, you know, walk out with this uh, with this bag of drugs? <clears throat> so he comes to the conclusion that Frank will, Frank will kill him when Frank figures out who it had to be. And he said, it's, got to, it's going to be me or Frank. We both can't survive this. One of us has got to go. Wow. So him and his buddy decide maybe they'll maybe they'll knock Frank and Tony off. And they're, they're putting together a plan in the upper crust to kill Frank and Tony. Wow! And then the guy determines. He said, "When the push came to shove, he said, I'm not a killer. I can't. I can't do it. You know, I, I know it would be the way out, but I can't do it." So he said, "The only other way is to take Frank down. Let the law take him down." So he contacts Metro Secret Witness and says, "I." I got a deal for you. And that's how this guy ended up becoming an informant first for Metro. And then they turned him over to the FBI and uh, the federal prosecutor. So he went through that. So anyway, Frank calls me one day last August, just a year ago. And he says, I guess who was on my tour last night? I says, who? So he gives me this name. And I said, well, who the hell's he? I never heard this guy before. He said, he's the guy that was the informant that brought us down. I said, what? <laughs> I said, I thought I knew everything there was to know about, about that era. I said, how, how did this get by me? Frank said, well, it's not the kind of thing I talk about all the time. So I said, well, I would have wished the hell I'd have been in that car. That must have been quite a, you know, I mean, here's this guy that yeah. <laughs> there was the informant against you. I said, and he made it back. Okay, huh? He said, oh, yeah. He said, uh, so we, he said, we talked. He said, in fact, I want to tell you, he wants to write a book. Do you want to work with him on it? So Frank set me up with this uh with this guy to do the informant, uh, the informant book. So when's that book coming out? Well, it's at the publishers now It'll be out by the end of the year. So that'll be two to look for the, the yeah. kitchen hits, great, greatest kitchen hits and, uh, and the informant. I'll make sure Gary knows when they're out. So yeah. All right. we'll, 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 we'll get him. something out on the podcast and on the uh, Facebook pages. So uh, thanks a lot, Denny. You, I really appreciate it. You're, you're a true gentleman. Yes. I'll tell you what, guys, yeah. when we first started doing this, Denny, he just took me under his wing and he lined me up with all those witnesses and witnesses, all those uh, uh, storytellers to videotape out in Las Vegas for my first movie. And, and he's always been there for me. If I had any questions or wanted to know about anything or, or needed anything, Denny was always there for me. He's a good guy. I appreciate you, Denny. Well, thank you, Gary, and uh, good good relationship we've had, and you're you're always there for me too. So it's a two way street, and and I appreciate the hell out of that. Very entertaining, uh, Denny. Enjoyed that. Yeah, it was great. 
right. well thank you guys it's been a real pleasure talking with you anybody time anybody's got a question just get a hold of me and i'll answer it for you if i can and uh, if not, I'll make something up that sounds <laughs> only only kidding, only kidding. That's my motto, man. <laughs> okay, fellas, good night. Right. It's been a real pleasure. Right. Thank you very much. Take care, everybody. Good night now. Right. Good night, everybody. Take care. Right. Casey, be careful with those wires, Casey. <laughs> Happy birthday, Larry. Thank you, Casey. Oh, anyway. Birthday. <laughs> I want to do this again. You got any suggestions for topics? Why email me and uh, maybe I can get another uh, guest on and, and we can do something like this. That's again. great, Gary. Okay. We could do we could do one on mob books or something. Maybe yeah. like we did movies. You know, books would be a good one or something like that. Okay, all right, we'll do it. But, Fantastic, Gary. Yeah, a okay. lot of fun. All right, good night. Thanks, Gary. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Thank you. I thank you for listening and supporting Gangland Wire Crime Stories. If you want some more connection to the show, find my private Facebook group called Gangland Wire Crime Stories. I only admit podcast listeners. I have a public page, Twitter feed, and Instagram, all under Gangland Wire. Or you can email me at ganglandwire at gmail.com. As a lot of you know, I have a website, www.ganglandwire.com. On the shop page, you'll find a donate button to support the podcast. Now I realize that some of you may be out of work because of this dang virus, and I don't want you to even think about donating. But for the rest of you guys, for $25 or more, I have different rewards depending on how much you give me. Plus, another way to support my work is to go to Amazon and rent my documentaries, Gangland Wire and Brothers Against Brothers, The Savella Spiro War, or encourage your friends to do that. I have a book about the Las Vegas casino skimming investigation titled Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. Now that's a mouthful. I don't know what I was thinking when I titled that book. If you get the Kindle version, you'll get links to hear the actual wiretaps. Finally, don't forget you can buy me a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer with your Venmo app at Gangland Wire. You know, recently I've started hosting some Zoom calls that are restricted to fans who have supported the podcast in some manner. Besides cash donations, some of you are helping by becoming editors on my Facebook pages and keeping them filled with fresh content. And if anybody wants to write short blog pieces, no more than 100 or 150 words, and attach relevant photos, you can send those to me and I'll put those up on the Facebook. I have folks already like Ken C. from Arizona and Basil T. from Dallas helping with that. And they have both been doing a great job. I really appreciate what you guys have done. Every Facebook page can use more and more accurate content. People out there are starved for good, accurate content. Let me know if you're interested. Time for my public service announcement. Right now, Gangland Wire is supporting PTSD treatment and recovery for veterans. If you're a vet and you think you may need help with PTSD, call 1-800-273-8255 and press 1. Or you can text at 838-255. The VA also has a website with lots of resources at www.ptsd.va.gov. Well, as we used to say, I'm 1042. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.